You're listening to the Horizons Church Podcast. Hello. Hello. Question mark? Yeah. You there was that, a reflection on the top of that. Mm, wish you hadn't noticed. The raised yeah. voice. Funny you should bring it up, actually. <laughs> I, I didn't intend it. It just kind of happened. But it's funny because at the church, I'm often involved when we do video shoots. Right. And sometimes, you know, a credit to literally everyone who has stepped foot in front of a camera because it's awkward and weird. So this sure. is not an indictment for any, you know. <laughs> <laughs> this is, this is <laughs> starting to sound like it's going to be an indictment. <laughs> but there's there's this thing sometimes where people kind of end things and it's like, that doesn't sound like the end of a sentence. And it's the end of the video. I'm like, that's unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, like right now, and it's funny because I don't know if someone will listen to this or if they'll listen to this and then figure out what I'm talking about, but there is a video yet to happen, yet to be viewed by our audience. Not something one of our, you know, our local people did. It's it's a video we're editing that's pre-existing oh. content. And um, sadly, the individual ends her sentence with what basically sounds like a question mark, and that is, that's it is a sentence. It is not a question. <laughs> and it's like, that's quite unfortunate we have to end it there because it doesn't it really, doesn't really uh, sound final. So. It's interesting because... Because when you take public speaking classes or if you listen to experts in public speaking, Mm -hmm. talking about speech patterns, etc., there is a tendency in folks, if they want to sound less threatening or domineering or whatever have you, there's a tendency to really raise the inflection of your voice mm, like this yeah, and to just keep talking like that. That's my word. It sounds like your voice is on a tightrope. It sounds hard to keep that up. You know what I mean? To always talk like this? But especially in situations like a podcast interview or public speaking engagement, stuff like that. People who would normally talk normally, you'll notice they'll talk like this and they'll keep the inflection of their voice raised and it makes it sound like everything's ending on a question. (laughs) And mentally you do that because you're a little more self-conscious about Mm. speaking, but also... Asking questions yeah. is always taken as less, you know, like forceful. Yeah, it's open-ended. But the problem is, is when you're saying sentences, yeah. declarative sentences, there's like a mismatch there. And it actually, it creates a very ingratiating, annoying mm. feeling in the person listening, yeah. in the people listening. And you'll you'll notice that when people public speak and they end like that. It'll, you know, you probably noticed it already. Like you, people talk like that. Yeah. They talk completely normal in real life, but then everything ends on the up note. Mm. And it, it gets very quickly irritating (laughs) yeah i think i think it's very interesting to hear like well interesting is a unique word to use in this circumstance politicians eh, whatever or lawyers Mm -hmm. maybe whatever (laughs) but they're often very very good or tragically awful yeah and it can be very fascinating just to see exactly how they because there's i mean there's some people love or hate just like you've delivered that in a in a pretty impressive way or or a case that you're like, I disagree, or like, I think the plaintiff is wrong or whatever, but that lawyer is, is delivering really an excellent position. I mean, that could honestly be kind of entertaining to watch, but also infuriating. <laughs> They're terrible. You're like, please end this. How could you win? How could you restated yourself four times? It's terrible. Oh, yeah. The same thing with anyone who speaks in a public yeah. capacity. I don't envy so, it, man. Yeah. But anyway, that's just an interesting little tidbit. So if you if you happen to find yourself in a situation where you're speaking publicly, just remember, don't constantly raise the inflection of your voice unless you're genuinely asking a question. Yeah. In that case, go ahead. Yeah. But otherwise, keep that inflection at a good, normal, low-ish yeah. level. Declare your declaration. Declare your declaration. Yes. Mm. So... Anyway, that's a first for this podcast, talking about speech patterns. Yeah. And you know what else is going to be a first? Yeah. Actually, technically not a first. <laughs> I didn't we've, think so. We've mentioned this many times, actually. 
<laughs> no, yeah, a topic that has arisen a couple of times on the podcast, kind of in passing more or less, but mm. it somehow always comes back around, is the topic of indulgences in the Roman Catholic Church. Oh, yeah, yeah. So we've we've had a lot of drive-by mentions, but it didn't occur to me that we've never actually stopped to, to talk about it. No, we have not. It has definitely been drive-bys, as yeah. you said. We, we were driving right by, waving, and then moving on. <laughs> but now we're going to... Look at that weird thing put over the, there. Put the car in park and go over and say, what's the deal with you? <laughs> okay. And we're going to find out, or not. Who knows? Oh, man. Yeah, because believe it or not, indulgences are still an important part of Roman theology. Oh, what? Um, yeah, they didn't die out after the Protestant Reformation, which I feel like a lot of people are like, oh, indulgences are those weird things that happened back in the medieval ages. But no, indulgences are still a thing. I genuinely, and this is not to be disrespectful or make a joke. <laughs> it's just to make a joke. <laughs> uh, I kind of thought this died out with like treating illness with leeches. <laughs> It, it just seems like so genuinely like old era to me that I'm surprised. So are you telling me that right now I could I could go convert and just nab myself an indulgence? That's right. You could just go. Well, I mean, it depends on how Pope Francis, I guess, is feeling. Do I have to go to him directly? Well, it falls more to his jurisdiction. He is the one Ooh. who is the, it's really a. Some yeah. high, high level business here. But. One easy way to do it, at least once upon a time, was I think when he got a Twitter account, you could get an indulgence for follow. I'm not joking. Like, that was a thing that you could do. Oh, there's these moments in our history where someone uses social media and they don't, I feel like they don't understand the entity that it is. <laughs> and they use it anyway. I'm like, wow. Memes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, you have that going on. All that said, I do think that indulgences are a grossly misunderstood part of mm, Catholic theology. Sure. And even though we fastidiously reject indulgences, <laughs> I actually thought it would be helpful to discuss what indulgences actually are according to Catholic teaching, just so mm -hmm. we're clear on that in case we have to deal with it. But also, I do think there is some stuff in this topic that can help us see some illuminating ways to understand sin and forgiveness okay. in our own context yeah. as good old-fashioned children of the Reformation, <laughs> All right. not Roman Catholics. So let's begin with the Catholic Catechism's definition of an indulgence, because contrary to popular Protestant belief, an indulgence is not meant to be a license to sin. It, there's a, I don't know if it's a joke so much, but it's like, oh, indulgence, you know, just just indulging sin. <laughs> yeah, that is the, that's which, the impression. Yeah, which, yeah. I mean, you know, well, we'll get into the history here, here <laughs> shortly, but if you open a Catholic Catechism today and you go to paragraph 1471, this is what you will read. An indulgence is a remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sins whose guilt has already been forgiven, which the faithful Christian who is duly disposed gains under certain prescribed conditions through the action of the church, which, as the minister of redemption, dispenses and applies with authority the treasury of the satisfactions of Christ and the saints. Ooh, that is yeah. a mouthful of a run-on sentence. Honestly, in preparation, I had to read that maybe four times. <laughs> He's got like the diagrams on you, like diagramming it. Like, <laughs> it was, I was breaking it down. I was like, I'm losing my place. Just reading a, one sentence. I feel like it does make clear that like the caricature that we have of indulgences is wrong. Yeah. I am left wondering what the purpose is <laughs> because <laughs> it's like remission of punishment. Cool. For the sins for whose guilt has already been forgiven. <laughs> so why? What is, what is happening? Uh, yes, that is an excellent question. So what they're basically saying is this. When Christ died on your behalf yep. and you confessed him as Lord and believed in your heart that he was raised from the dead, mm -hmm. your fellowship with God was restored and the eternal damning penalty of your sins were forgiven. Okay. okay? Straightforward enough, right? Yeah. So far, so good. 
But there are still temporal or temporary consequences that occur in this world okay. because of sin. So like the earthly consequences, like like murder or theft, like the tangible fallout. Yes, of your you actions. will go to prison. Yeah. You are found guilty of murder. Okay. You know, like that kind of a thing, right? So another common example, biblically speaking, is you've got a guy like King David, man after God's own heart the sweet psalmist of Israel. Mm -hmm. I mean, he is one of the most important figures in redemptive history, right? And yet he takes Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. He has Uriah murdered to cover up the fact that he got Bathsheba pregnant and so that he can take Bathsheba for himself. And it's just a mess, right? Mm. And when the prophet Nathan confronts him, he confesses, I have sinned. And Nathan says, God has forgiven your sin. You're not going to die. You're not condemned to hell. However, David had to deal with the extremely unfortunate fallout of that sin for the remainder of his life. Yeah. You know, he had massive family issues. His kingdom became divided. He refused to discipline his sons. And I, you know, the text doesn't say, but it's not difficult to imagine, oh, he's committed this great moral sin. It's kind of hard to go and discipline your sons for moral sins when they can turn right around and say, well, you have done way worse. So how, who are you to talk to me? He got all these issues, yeah. right? And he has to deal with the consequences of his sins in a temporal sense on this earth. Well, with that example in mind, surely this whole indulgent thing is is not to tell me there's there's just a nice little way I can pay a fee and d- <laughs> d- delete the betrayal of an affair or the family strife. Like, whoops, here's my golden indulgence ticket. Erase it, please. I just what there are just that? things these circumstances, these these consequences that happen for they happen for a reason because you did the thing. And you can't, what what is the Catholic Church like saying, okay, we'll just erase that for you. (laughs) You can just not go to prison for that or something. I don't think, that cannot be what they're suggesting. Oh, yeah, like David going up to, you know, Absalom, be like, look, indulgence, got the indulgence, (laughs) Doesn't count today. (laughs) Yeah, you do, I think, touch on a very obvious problem that seems to arise with this because what the Catholic Catechism is saying is that the church as the minister of redemption can take the merit of Christ and the saints and apply it to penitent sinners in such a way as to cover their temporal punishment. Hmm. So maybe before we get into the obvious (laughs) issues that might arise from that or the questions we might have about it, let's say that on the one hand, there might be a way in which this could make sense. Okay. Insofar as You have Jesus giving the church the keys of the kingdom, telling them that whatever they bind on earth is bound in heaven and whatever they loose on earth is loosed in heaven. Hmm. And if you're thinking of that in terms of like church discipline, for example, you might think, okay, yeah, if you have a person in the church who's committed a gross moral sin like adultery, you've barred them from receiving the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, you could relieve that temporal punishment by welcoming them back to the table if they demonstrated genuine repentance. Okay. Which is a lot like what an indulgence actually was back in church history in the patristic uh-huh. era. Okay. Okay. That that could be fine as far as it goes. Like I, I could understand how logically, okay, that makes sense to me to an extent, mm. right? You know? So basically like there are elements of grace you could afford to someone that sure they don't deserve given their actions but like paying for that (laughs) feels a little gross to me or or, I don't know maybe that's overstating it it just kind of feels like you're ruining the sentiment of someone saying let me bring you back in an effort 
to begin healing. Yes. And in the patristic era, you didn't pay. Okay. It wasn't like you were saying, I'm going to pay, you know, however many talents of gold to get this indulgence from Bishop Ambrose. (laughs) Like, it was meant to be, we want to see genuine repentance out of you. Yeah. And this is where mechanically we begin to run into problems. Okay. Because there are obviously some huge problems with Rome's teachings about indulgences. Mm. So like I said, in the early days of the church, indulgences conceptually were more like that. It was meant to spur people onto genuine repentance and contrition. But over the course of the centuries, you can come to see now how this could be abused. Like you might have a bishop who says, well, if you don't want to do the hard work of demonstrating to the church over the course of this next month that you're genuinely repentant. Mm. We can expedite that process if you will make a contribution to demonstrate your contrition. Like, oh, if you're willing to pay this much, you know, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Like, you can start to see these little logical steps that eventually, however, (laughs) get you into the height of the abuse of indulgences in the Middle Ages, where you have guys like Johann Tetzel in the 1500s, who, as we've mentioned before, famously had little ditties where he'd say things like, when a penny in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Mm. Like, he's basically saying that he does not care about your heart. He does not care that you're actually repenting of sins. He just wants money to build St. Peter's Basilica. I see. Which is exactly really what happened. He would sell you an indulgence, and he would typically, I mean, make these grandiose promises about, like, if you buy this indulgence to help build St. Peter's Basilica— Oh, and on this night only, you get a plenary indulgence wow. that will grant you complete and total remission of the temporal punishment of sin forever. Basically, he I mean, like really, that kind like, of stuff. Figured out marketing. Oh, he did. He was brilliant. I mean, he was absolutely. You read the stuff that he would do. Dang. The man knew what he was doing. He he would put most marketing firms today to shame. Nintendo has nothing on him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. You're talking about like supply and demand. Yeah. So yeah, it was a mess, obviously. And then you have Martin Luther rising up and saying, this is ridiculous. <laughs> uh, you know, and then, and so begins the Protestant Reformation. And if you're interested in that particular piece of the puzzle, like historically and how that all came to be, we've mentioned him once or twice, but there's this pastor theologian named Gavin Ortland, great scholar, and he has a wonderful YouTube channel called Truth Unite. And he did a very helpful video on this topic if you want to watch if you want to watch that on your own but at any rate you have all this going on and then of course the the catholic church at the council of trent after the reformation basically acknowledges oh yeah indulgences were abused by a lot of folks but we're gonna keep doing them oh (laughs) yeah obviously as it stands to this day because the catechism still yeah teaches it it is a little different but here's my problem with it at the end of the day i am not clear at all, either from my reading in the catechism, because I read the whole, <laughs> I read the whole thing on indulgences, and then I consulted other Catholic theologians mm-hmm. on this topic on the internet. Not like I went to Catholic theologians. Right. Or, I, I read their writings on it. I really was trying to be charitable. I was trying to steel man the argument. I really wanted to understand, like, is there something I'm missing here about yeah. how this whole thing works? And I just don't understand still how this works. That's what I'm trying to get. Okay. I just don't get it mechanically. And I don't see at all the basis for the authority Mm. for doing something like this. You know, I can see, again, how the church could relieve you from being barred from the sacrament. Because in Catholic theology especially, receiving the Eucharist, you're receiving the literal transubstantiated body and blood of Christ. And if you're not allowed to receive that, that is that is death. Yeah. And there's a sense in which that's true in Protestant theology too, but it's just different. And if they're the one, I mean, if they're the ones administering this and they're, they're kind of holding the keys to whether or not you get to it, it does make sense that they're going to be the ones to say, come back in. Right, exactly. So I get that. What I don't see at all 
back to your original point <laughs> is how they can apply the merits of like say the saints yeah who like one again how are you tabulating the coffers of merit <laughs> Like Pope Francis is like, I'm checking the heavenly bank account today. And so how's the treasury of merit today? I don't see how you can apply the merits of the saints to relieve people of the temporary consequences of their adultery or theft or murder. I just, I don't see how that works. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't find any explanation where someone was trying to say, oh, no, that's not what we're talking about here, like as far as temporary punishments. Yeah. Oh, by the way, this also applies to purgatory. Of course. And it relies on the doctrine of purgatory because there's also this teaching in the Catholic Church that, you know, if you're not completely purified of your sins before you die, you still need to be purified before you go to heaven, and that's Mm -hmm. what purgatory is for. Okay, right. And the only basis for indulgences that was given by Pope Paul VI, for instance, and if I'm not mistaken, he was the guy who, like, wrote the, the encyclical or whatever document it was on the indulgences when this like really define it. Mm -hmm. And he said uh, that the basis for indulgences was, quote, and this is it, was founded on divine revelation handed down from the apostles. That is convenient. Yeah, it's like, I just don't, you know. And then he tried, I think he quoted Matthew 28, 18 through 20, where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And I'm like, that, what? How are you getting, how are you getting indulgences out of that verse? Yeah. I just do not see it. It's one of my least favorite bits of rationale. Yeah. (laughs) Which comes back to, to trust me. Yeah. Which comes back again to like the idea that the Catholic Church has sacred tradition as a whole subset of sacred authority. Yeah. And so that's just not convincing to me. I just, I can't see it. And I really am, you know. Right. Yeah. I'm trying to be charitable like i don't want to be the you know the the catholic basher who's out here like you guys are stupid like i i love thomas aquinas and uh, there are lots of things about you know uh, i don't know how to say that i love that kind of statement as a defense listen i, I love, love thomas, thomas aquinas. aquinas okay um i'm trying to steel man the arguments i wasn't trying to find some protestant hot take where it was like indulgences are stupid and these are the reasons why like i'm quoting from the catechism i'm reading all the pertinent documents i just cannot see it. Yeah. And I can't see it based on earlier patristic understandings of mm. this concept. Mm-hmm. Even if you would argue all this goes back to some of the fathers. Well, if it does, they had a completely different understanding of it than we do today. Yeah. Here's the other thing, too. If the Catholic Church actually has this kind of power, like you can so remit the temporal punishment of sin that like, oh, you can just skip purgatory or skip this or whatever. Why not grant that to all the baptized faithful. Mm. If that's in your authority, why not just do that? Yeah. Why is it there are certain circumstances where you do and you don't, why not just give that out? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it seems kind of like a weird, and of course, we're over here Protestants saying there's no purgatory. <laughs> that's not how this works. Yeah. So, you know, it's fine. But that is like a big question for me. Like, why wouldn't you just do that for I all, guess, the, all the faithful, at least? You know yeah. what I mean? If I kind of devil's advocate that from, if I try to argue this as, as a Catholic, it, it, I might want to say something like, well, okay, yeah, but you say that like, if God loves his children, then why doesn't he just say, okay, everyone gets in. You're my creation. Yeah. I have the ultimate power to do whatever I want. And obviously, obviously this is not the position we take as Protestants or the argument. we. (laughs) But, you know, if I find it like frustrating because I don't really know how, how a Catholic would address that. Right. You know, is I don't want to maybe make a criticism that someone can throw it back at me. I'm like, you don't get it. Like my answer is like, I think you're, you're missing the way this functions. Would they say the same thing to me? You're missing the way our system functions. And I think that's completely fair. And that probably is a piece of, Mm. Us misunderstanding how some of these things work. And even then, like, my question then is like, well, we're talking, yeah, it's like, we're not talking about the mass of humanity. We're talking about, like, the baptized in the church or something like that. Yeah. So all that is to say, though, like, even to that point, 
it's just a strange teaching to me. The it whole is concept odd. is, you know what I mean? Or at and least I like the longer it went on, the stranger it became. Yes, yes, exactly. So all that is to say, what I do find helpful for us as Protestants, again, is that distinction between eternal and temporal consequences for sin. Okay. I do think that's something that we ought to come back to occasionally, that we're not quite so quick to remember. Yeah. You can encounter this a lot, especially when someone has committed a sin that is damaging to a relationship, where it's like, listen, God forgave me. Mm. And and you, you know, there is, we are obligated by Christ to forgive one another if someone confesses their sin. Like, how many times, Lord, am I to forgive my brother if he sins against me? What if it's even seven times in the day? He's like, well, 70 times seven. Like, yeah. just keep forgiving them. That does not, however, automatically mean, oh, the relationship is back hunky-dory to exactly what it was before. Exactly. Like, there are consequences and things you have to work through. And there is this tendency, I think, for us to say, like, well, God forgave me, so yeah. it just, it's automatically, magically all better. Like Something about that just yeah. kind of secretly creeps into our subconscious. Right. Like, oh, suddenly, suddenly these temporal consequences should right. be erased. Like, yeah. And that's just. We know better. Yeah. And that's never how it's worked. Yeah. In the history of the people of God. Because, yeah, like, when we trust in Christ, we're welcome back to God. Nothing that can separate us from his love. We're sealed. We're his. End of story. But. As the author of Hebrews said, God disciplines the children whom he loves. Mm. Like that is a part of our discipleship journey. So we do have to occasionally learn to live with the consequences of our sins. And there's a weird sense in which that is further sanctifying to us. Mm. You know, it reminds us that we're not the Christ and we're not perfect. And that as far as it falls on us by the grace of Christ, there is work for us to do in restoring relationships by the means that God has given us in Scripture. Yeah. So anyway. There's your primer on indulgences. Wow. And uh, hopefully a good reminder of the difference for us between eternal and temporal punishment for sin. True. So yeah, there you have it. Well, thanks as always for listening. If you leave us an honest five-star review, we will grant you a partial indulgence. (laughs) (laughs) One fragment. It's like Bitcoin. You get a fragment. (laughs) Just a part of one. Little piece. Oh, kidding, of course. But if you did find this helpful and you want to do that, that'd be great. And... If you have any questions on this or any other topic, as always, feel free to email us at podcast at horizonschurch.net. Thank you, as always, for listening, and we will catch you next time.